Father, as we look in your word this morning, uh, help us to take to heart lessons that will serve us well through the rest of the short life, the short days you give us on this planet. Help us to remember there's an end and to finish well. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes 7 8 says, The end of a matter is better than its beginning. The end of the story is better than the beginning of the story. We're ending a story this morning. We're ending the story of King Solomon. We'll be in 1 Kings 11. Solomon starts out exceedingly well. And as you'll see this morning, if you don't know the story, he doesn't end as well as he began. And it's a bittersweet story because of that. Before we go into 1 Kings 11, I want to give you a thumbnail sketch of another man whose life began well and ended otherwise. Like Solomon, the gentleman that I'm thinking of referring to, was the son of an extremely wealthy father. He grew up with the privilege and prestige that great wealth brings. I mean great wealth, not just a little money, but a lot of money. Grew up with great wealth. Because of this, he inherited the, the power that wealth brings at an early age because both his parents died while they were relatively young. So he inherited this great wealth quite early in his life. Besides the wealth that he had, though, this was a guy of really exceptional abilities, personal abilities. He had incredible uh, intellect. He had incredible business savvy. He had, uh, he had quite... Uh, a determined will, and he was brash and confident, and all these things served him well, so that I suspect even if he hadn't inherited the wealth he started with, uh, he would have done just fine on his own. So he starts out young in life with all the privilege and power that wealth brings. He's on his own with this power and wealth, and really he accomplishes great things, uh, very highly successful. But then he is known as much for the end of his life as he is for the beginning because his end is so odd and so strange and because he fell so far. We remember him, quite frankly, more for the way he ended his life than the way he began it. And the man I'm referring to is Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, the movie was made about his life last year. Howard Hughes' father accumulated a fortune because he made a better mousetrap. He developed a drill bit lived down in Texas, and he made a fortune selling a drill bit that was used for oil. <clears throat> when Howard Hughes was 19, he inherited all of his father's wealth. His father died, then his mother died. This guy's still wet behind the ears. He's about 20 years old, and he goes to Hollywood. And to the chagrin of all the Hollywood, you know, the old-timers, the guys that have been there for a while, he comes in and starts his own production company. And, you know, they figure this is Junior who has money to spend but no sense and he'll fall flat on his face, but he doesn't. His first two films are highly successful financially. And then the films that he follows up with are nominated for Academy Awards. This was Howard Hughes. That's how he began. But, you know, all his life he also had this love affair with aviation, and people also remember him for that. Howard Hughes was one of the original owners, co-owners of TWA, and later in life he owned Hughes Air West. But in his youth, Howard Hughes developed, he was a brain, he developed airplanes, and he flew them personally. Howard Hughes, in his youth, he set the world speed record for aircraft, 352 miles an hour. This is before jets with just a propeller. He flew that plane himself. He set the world speed record. 
He also set a couple world records for time. He flew from Los Angeles to New York in less than seven and a half hours, and he took someone else's plane, but he flew around the globe in less than three and a half days. This was a, a determined guy with lots of money, but lots of ability as well. Howard Hughes was a survivor, too. He flew a plane, and it crashed. It crashed in Southern California. It was a plane that could easily have taken his life. He was badly damaged by it, third-degree burns, lots of broken bones. And this had an effect on him later in life as well, which we'll get to in a minute. But he also, from this point on, he had a mustache or a beard later in life. He was, he was well-remembered for the mustache because it covered a scar that was a symbol of his surviving this very terrible plane wreck. He married twice, um, but his uh, social and intimate acquaintances went far wider than his two wives. This was a guy who in his heyday he dated and seduced and courted most of the leading ladies of Hollywood. He, he was very well off financially, obviously, but he also controlled a significant portion of Hollywood, so he courted or seduced or knew on intimate terms many, many of the leading ladies, the most beautiful women in the world of his day uh, were for a time or, or more were Howard Hughes also. So if you looked at his life, he started with all this wealth and he had all this success personally and in business and whatever he put his hand to, kind of the golden touch, the Midas touch, this was Solomon. And then his wealth was such too, though, he got a little squirrely towards the end of his life he was so wealthy that when he started living towards the end of his life in hotels, one hotel wanted to evict him, and I can't remember the reason why, but rather than be evicted, he just bought the hotel. Or he lived a lot in Las Vegas, so he suffered from insomnia later in his life, so he would be awake lots during the wee hours of the morning. He felt like there was nothing to watch on television, so he bought the television station. So he'd have programming for his insomnia periods late at night. This was how wealthy he was. By the way, also, Howard Hughes, in a shrewd move, Howard donated all of his money to a trust. And this, this faced court battles for quite a lengthy period of time during his life and after. But he funded, Stan, you might know this, I believe it's the world's second largest medical trust. It's still going today. It's worth billions and billions of dollars still gives out grants today, the second largest uh, medical trust in the world. This was Howard Hughes. So here's this titan of the aviation business. He's a filmmaking giant, highly successful in the business world. But if you're my age or older, you probably remember how he ended his days. In fact, I remember in my days in grade school and high school, just the stories, and I didn't know enough to have a reference for it, but of Howard Hughes was seen on a highway someplace. And Howard Hughes was found in a hotel, in a filthy hotel. And Howard Hughes became this guy who was afraid of his own shadow, became highly fearful of germs or anything that might be infectious or contagious. Uh, he moved literally from one hotel to another. And most people in the world, even though he still was quite wealthy, other people were managing his funds. Most people had no idea where he was or what he was doing. It was odd, too, Howard Hughes died on a return trip from Mexico to Houston because he was so sick he needed to go get medical treatment. He was so disfigured that the authorities at the airport required the corpse to be fingerprinted because they could not recognize him as Howard Hughes. 
here was this guy. He started well, very well, highly successful in everything he did. And then he fell all the way down to be the shadow of a man. You know, you ask yourself why. I certainly don't know all the reasons, but I do know a few things about his biography that affected the way he ended his life. One was many people have thought that part of his mental debilitation towards the end of his life was the lingering effect of syphilis. He contracted syphilis during his philandering days in his youth, and it is possible, and it was still possible in his day, sometimes syphilis could have a lingering effect that would show up decades literally later in um, deterioration of the brain. And some people believe that his what looked like dementia towards the end of his life was the lingering effect of syphilis contracted during his earlier days. His behavior came back to haunt him. Another problem was after that horrendous plane wreck he survived, he was on narcotics for pain. And he became addicted to pain pills, narcotic pain pills, which he was on off, off and on for the rest of his life. This also had a debilitating effect on him. And then just this weird, by today's standards, we would call it obsessive-compulsive disorder. I don't know if this would be treated with uh, any of the medications a psychiatrist might prescribe. He was afraid to touch people. He was highly afraid. Although he lived in filth and squalor in these hotels, he was afraid of germs. Um, anyway, he, he took on quite eccentric behavior. But anyway, this guy who started so well just finished miserably. He had all the wealth and the power and the success he could have, and he ends up life as this shadow, this fragment of a man that had started out. With that as our sobering backdrop, We're going to look at how Solomon finishes his life. Started well, very well. Let's see how he finishes in 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you for or because they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of, his, of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. By the way, this is the Mount of Olives. This is the same mount by the way, that Solomon's descendant will tear down these altars, these idol sites later. I believe it's Josiah will tear down. The same mountain that Jesus comes across on Palm Sunday, the same mount Jesus promised he would return to later. On that same mountain, that same location, Solomon erects altars to idols. And for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon, thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. By the way, last week we read about that second appearance in 1 Kings 9. 
And in that second appearance, God had specifically warned Solomon against idolatry, if you remember last week's lesson. Verse 10, And had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. I'm going to skip through the rest of chapter 11 here. Then the Lord raised up an adversary, verse 14, to Solomon Hadad, the Edomite. He was of the royal line in Edom. Verse 23, God also raised up another adversary, Rezon, the son of Eliada, who had fl- fled from his lord, Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah. Verse 26, then, the lord, then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. I'm not reading it, but this passage also tells through a prophet to Jeroboam that Jeroboam is the next king of Israel, that God is in fact giving Jeroboam the northern ten tribes that he'll be king. And by the way, also, he makes the same promise to Jeroboam that he did to Solomon. And Jeroboam does the same thing Solomon does and so does not receive the conditional promise. Verse 40, Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt. And he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. And forgive me as I continue to insert here, this is highly ironic. Highly ironic. Solomon pursues and persecutes the man that he knows is God's chosen one to replace him as king. Does this sound familiar? David's father, excuse me, Solomon's father David is persecuted by King Saul because King Saul knows David is God's chosen one to replace him as king. Solomon is doing what Saul did to his replacement. Verse 41, now the rest of the acts of Solomon and whatever he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? Thus, the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David, and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. Now just think for a moment. Solomon, the wisest man on earth, the wealthiest, the best builder, Solomon, the temple builder. We just read about that just a couple weeks ago. The glory, the temple, and God's promises. Solomon, the temple builder, becomes an idol worshiper. Solomon, who erected the temple for God, builds altars to foreign deities for his wives. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, arguably falls headlong into folly. Solomon, the golden king in Israel's golden age, loses the kingdom for his future generations. Solomon, who asks God for wisdom, rejects that same wisdom when he pursues idols in the end of his life. He started so well, he fell so far, he ended so poorly, you've got to ask the question, what happened? Why did it end like this? What did he do? Where did he go wrong? How did he started so well, finish so poorly? And in a word, the reason he finished so poorly is he directly and he consistently disobeyed a direct command from God. He disobeyed a direct command from God, not once, but repeatedly. If you look back at verses 1 and 2, 
Solomon loved many foreign women from the nations which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, don't associate with them. If you do, they'll turn your hearts away after other gods. Now this is tied in verse 1 with Pharaoh's daughter. If you remember back in 1 Kings 3, one of the first things Solomon does is marries the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, we can weigh this both directions. On one hand, this was not expressly forbidden by God or by the law of Moses. Egypt wasn't in the list of nations that Israel dispossessed, among whom they were not to have any associations. Israel was an entirely different nation, not not named in those lists, which we'll look at in a minute. So it wasn't direct disobedience for him to marry this gal from Egypt. But also, this had at least the appearance of wisdom because... When he married this gal from Egypt, he was, in effect, make, he was in effect making a treaty with Egypt. He was securing his southern border. By marrying, by marrying the daughter of Pharaoh, he created a military and a political alliance with Egypt. In other words, he knew there would be nothing to worry about from Egypt all along his southern border. So you could argue, Solomon, this was a prudent, a wise thing to do on the front end. You could make that argument, and it was not direct disobedience of God. But then following immediately on this, we're told that Solomon loved all these other gals, and they're from the nations that were prohibited to Israel to have any association with, much less marriage. Both of those directly forbidden. And by the way, again, the passage we just read last week, 1 Kings 9, God reiterated this to Solomon. Don't follow those other gods. Now, Solomon had the benefit of being, be, of being warned twice He had a personal warning from God in 1 Kings 9, but he also had the law of Moses. And let me just refresh your memory on just a couple of passages from the law of Moses, quite explicit and quite clear. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, Do not multiply wives for yourself. Why? They'll turn your heart away. You know, there's all kinds of jokes that we could make here about women being the problem, Paulette, but we're not going there. Right, we're not going there. Don't multiply wives. Why? If you do, they'll turn your heart from God. Don't do that. Exodus 34. God says to Israel, Make no covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going. It'll become a snare. If you make covenants, marriage included, with the people in the land, you'll fall over. A snare will trip you up. Instead, do this, tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their ashram. These are all the the instruments of idolatry. Don't associate with them. Don't make covenants with them. Certainly don't marry them. And instead, do this, tear down all their symbols of idolatry. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord Yahweh, the covenant god, the god you're in covenant with, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. You might take some of their daughters for for your sons and daughters, might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons to play the harlot with their gods. God says, don't associate with them, make no covenant with them, and tear down everything they've erected in the, in the land of Israel related to idolatry. Deuteronomy 7, God told Israel he would clear away the nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. These are the nations among which Solomon collected his wives. He says, no, you are to utterly destroy them, make no covenant with them, show them no favor, do not marry with them, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. And he says why. Deuteronomy 7, verse 4, 
they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And when that happens, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. What are you supposed to do? Tear down their altars, smash their pillars, cut down their ashram, burn their graven images with fire, because you are a holy people to Yahweh, your covenant God. Yahweh, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So Solomon knows the law of Moses, these passages, and God has directly confronted him with these same warnings. And what does he do? It says he holds fast to them in love. God says don't associate, and Solomon hugs them instead. And of course, physically, these are wives. Physically and spiritually, he holds fast to the women God had said you are not to marry. So... It's easy to say why Solomon fell. He who started so well, finished so poorly, because he, he violated, and he continued to violate the clear and the repeated commands of God. He disobeyed, and he fell. Just like Adam and Eve, he went up to the forbidden tree, and he took the fruit, and he ate it, and it killed him. This is exactly what happened. It's no more complex than that. Remember last time when we looked at the conditional promise God gave Solomon in chapter 9? If you'll obey, I'll bless you, it'll be great. If you disobey, I'll curse you and it'll be really bad. And we said it's a no-brainer, right? But no, the wisest man on earth, he chooses direct disobedience to God and it kills him. It is why he finishes poorly. Before we go on, it's a good time or a good place to ask yourself the same question I ask myself when I read this, and it's this. Uh, am I making room in my life for things that cause me to turn away from God? Am I holding on to something I know God doesn't want me to have? Am I holding on to anything? Or am I refusing to obey in an area where I know God is compelling my obedience? Am I omitting or committing in my life things that are going to alienate me from God? We'll talk more about this in just a minute. You know, you've got to ask the question. Solomon was smart, and he knew what God had said, so why would he make that choice? What could have gone through his mind that this wise guy would fall to such folly and end in this way? How could that happen? I've got a couple thoughts, just like Howard Hughes. I don't know all the answers, but I've got a couple thoughts on this. Solomon was so privileged and so blessed that I think probably at one level he thought this, I can do anything I want and it'll be okay because I'm special. I'm unique. And those things that would apply or be true to other people, they won't apply to me. And he was unique. And he had unique blessings and privileges. And he could have anything he wanted, anything he put his eyes on. And women are arguably... The beauty of women is, is God's high point in creation. You remember, women are the last thing of creation. It is the apex, as it were, of creation. Women harbor in themselves physically and emotionally and otherwise the most alluring, lovely qualities of God's creation. And I think Solomon, in his mind, is kind of like, I can have the best buildings, I can have the best food, I can have the best wine, the best horses, and I can have the best of women, the most alluring or desirable quantity or thing on earth. And I can break those rules that God has for everyone else because I'm special, because I'm unique, and that fallout that would occur for others, it won't happen to me. It won't be true of me. I suspect in part, at least, 
That's what Solomon thought. Somehow he thought what would be true of others wouldn't be true of me. I think it's interesting that probably for some period of time, Solomon sowed these wild oats just like Howard Hughes did, and there was no apparent ill effect. Verse 4 is interesting. It says, when he grew old, when he grew old, that's when the seeds that he had sown started coming up. In other words, when he was young and vigorous and vital and his will was solid, he was bringing in these gals, but he was staying true, at least on the outside, to God. But then the days roll by and he gets a little older and physically a little weaker. And his will starts to shake a little bit, not as firm as it used to be. And now he's got 700 gals saying, maybe day after day, boy, it'd sure be nice to have a little statue up there on the hill or one thing or another. You can imagine, 700 of them, 1,000 of them actually. Day after day, wanting the same things. And you know, after a while, just to keep peace in the house, even though it's a big house, he starts saying yes to one. And he says yes to another. You know, after a while, he's not just saying yes, he's going with them. He's going with them. But it's in his old age. It's as he grows old that this stuff, that the birds come home to roost. He went along probably for quite some time and saw no ill effect to the direct disobedience to God's command about these marriages. And you know it's easy sometimes for you and I to do the same thing. That is, we know something's wrong. But we'll say to ourselves something like this, you know, I'm just going to do it this one time. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to shade the truth. I'm going to take what's not mine. I'm going to do whatever it is. Or I'm not going to obey God. He wants me to do this one thing I know, but you know this one time I'm not going to do that. And, and we do it, or we don't do it. We, we obey, we disobey by omission or commission, and nothing seems to happen. It seems like we get away with it. So later, the same thing comes up, and, and we go through the same gymnastic, mental gymnastics, and, and we do it again. And then we do it again. And then we do it again. And, and what was a rare exception in our mind initially, it becomes the rule of life. It becomes what we are. It shapes our character. You know, sometimes sin is like the little cute puppy that you just want to stoop down and pet and feed. But, you know, it doesn't stay that way. Because those cute puppies, they grow up to be these vicious, ravenous dogs that you've got to contain with a chain, and even then, sometimes you can't hold them back. So Solomon, he sows all these seeds in his youth, and they come up when he grows old. And if you remember last time we talked about Galatians 6, sometimes you and I can sin, and it feels like at the time we're getting away with it, but we are sowing seeds. And life and sin, they have a life cycle. And everything doesn't come up immediately, and the repercussions of what we choose don't always come up immediately. Many times they take on a life of their own, and they'll come up later, sometimes at very inconvenient times. I think another thing Solomon did was he thought if he disobeyed that the repercussions would come, but they wouldn't be that bad. That is that he could take the hits. It would be worth the cost, whatever the judgment on sin was, would be worth the cost. The pleasure would be worth the cost. 
But you know, if you study his life or his dad's life, David, and remember, David is the human standard God sets up for all the kings that reign in Israel. David is God's man. You look in David's life and then look in Solomon's life. You look at the fallout from the sin and the cost to David personally, to David's family, to the nation of Israel, and to the future generations based on the sins of David, the high point in Israel's line of kings, and Solomon, the golden king during the golden age, you look at the fallout and then ask yourself, if they were sitting here today with you and I, if you asked them, was it worth it, what would they say? And just, you don't have to think very long. A David, because of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, we were talking about this this morning on the way to church, that leads to a domino effect in which one of his sons rapes one of his daughters, Another son kills that son for the rape. That son takes over the kingdom. There's military battles. All kinds of people are killed. A plague comes because David sins against God in numbering Israel. And thousands of people, innocent people that did no wrong, are killed because of David's sin. And for Solomon, Solomon loses the kingdom for his future generations. Remember, God said, if you'll obey your kids will be sitting on this throne the whole time. doesn't happen because of Solomon. His son loses the kingdom, and the folly of his son Rehoboam has come about because of Solomon's sin. So I think part of what happens is Solomon says to himself, we say to ourselves, it'll be a little thing, and I'm special or unique. It won't bite me. The dog won't bite. Or the repercussions won't be that bad, but... You know, when you read this stuff, you realize, no, the dog always bites, and the repercussions are worse than you would imagine. I love uh, Solomon. When I think about Solomon and David, I love these guys, and they have so many sterling qualities. And you, you know, too, it's easy for us to paint everything black or white. And, I, and moral, right and wrong is black and white, but people aren't. And it's a mistake to judge someone as totally good or totally bad because none of us are. If you're a Christian, we've talked about this, you've got a sinful nature that does nothing but sin and you've got a holy nature that does nothing but obey God because that's the way it is. And you and I live in the shades of gray, unfortunately. We obey sometimes and we don't obey sometimes, unfortunately. And I, Solomon started quite well, and he, and he ended very poorly. But, you know, he was a mix of the best and the worst in all of us, and just like his father, David, was. And I love Solomon and David because of the high points of their life, and I lament with them, I think, over the low points of their life. But he fell because he disobeyed. With both eyes open, he disobeyed the clear command of God. My goal for us in, in winding up Solomon is, is the, to enjoin on all of us basically to finish well, to finish well. And I'm going to finish this morning's teaching and our study of Solomon's life by letting Solomon have the last word here. This is out of his book, Ecclesiastes. It talks about life on the earth. And these verses are out of chapter 12. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, 11, the words of wise men are like goads. The words of the wise are like goads. And you know if you use animals or uh, herd animals or whatever, a goad is a stick. And you prod people, or today they're electric. Uh, you prod critters with the goad. 
In Acts, God told Paul that he'd been goading him. And when you use a goad, you get somebody, you get an animal where you want them to be. You get them where they need to be. You keep them in line. Solomon says the words of the wise are like goads. Wise words keep us where we should be. They keep us from going the wrong direction, keep us head down the straight and narrow. He says the masters of of these collections are like well-driven nails or pegs given by one shepherd. A wise person uses wise words like pegs or nails. They hold things together the way they're supposed to be. Or they're like pegs on the wall where you hang your coat. You put something where it's supposed to be. That's what wise words are supposed to do. And listen to Solomon's last wise words in Ecclesiastes. He says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun, the light, the moon, the stars are darkened. And I won't read all this, but Solomon goes into this graphic description of growing old. He says, you don't see so well when you grow old. You don't hear so well. Your teeth don't work the way they used to. and Your strength fails. He's describing what he personally experienced. You grow old. So he says this, so when you're young... Remember your creator. In other words, set your path in the right direction when you're young because the older you get, the harder it becomes to keep going down the right direction. You lose your will. You lose your strength. Keep going. Set that in your mind when you're young. He says in verse 5, For then man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. You're headed towards your eternal home. That's where that aging process ends. Verse 7, The dust, that is your body, will return to the earth as it was, and your spirit will return to God who gave it. That's your future. Body goes to the dust, spirit goes back to God. So he closes this book on wisdom, verses 13 and 14. The conclusion, final word, is this. Fear God and keep His commandments. This applies to every person. Kings and you and me, And he says at verse 14, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Whether it's good or evil. This is a fearful thing on one hand. But it can be the other. When you think of Solomon or this passage in Ecclesiastes or Solomon's end or his beginning, these things can serve us well by just being examples to us. Starting well is a good thing. Finishing well is even better. How do you finish well? Remember God in your youth, as soon as whatever that youth looks like. If you come to Christ in your 40s, that's okay. Remember Him in in your spiritual youthfulness. Or if you come to Him as a young child, remember Him in your youth and let His words be those goads that keep you going in the right direction. And when you're tempted and you're lured to do something you know goes against God's clear commandments, remember guys like Solomon or David. Special people given great responsibility and great privilege who blew it and reaped terrible results because of it. You and I as Christians, we're headed to a judgment seat. Paul calls it the judgment seat of Christ. Your sins and mine are covered by Christ at the cross. This is the the great thing for all of us. We all are a mixed bag. We do well and we don't do well. But Christ's blood covers our sins. We won't be judged for them. But our lives will be judged right here, verse 14. 
Our lives will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll give an account. And Paul says those things that we do that are for Christ, they're like gold, silver, and precious gems that cannot be harmed by fire. They shine forth at this judgment seat. But he says the things that we do selfishly or sinfully for ourselves, that's like wood, hay, and stubble. It gets burned up as Christ's eyes look at them as they pass through his judgment. It gets burned up because it has no intrinsic value. It's left behind. Now, this can terrify you or it can encourage you. And hopefully it's an encouragement. It encourages us to remember to choose the things that please the Lord. Fearful thing on one hand, well, we could suffer loss. Or you know what? The other side of that is great thing on the other hand because Christ will reward your faithfulness. You know, many times, I hope you find this true in your life, many times you'll say no to sin and no one else knows. Just in the arena of your mind, you'll be tempted. And no one else sees that temptation. No one else sees you choose obedience, but Christ does. And when you stand before him, he'll reward that faithfulness. So much, you know, we are not open books to each other. We all have secret lives that nobody knows but us and the Lord. Well, the judgment seat, that life that you're honoring Christ with that no one else knows about, it'll be revealed. And you'll be blessed and you'll be honored. It'll be a good thing. So we don't need to see these things as just fearful judgments, but as the promise that even things that no one else knows about that you did for Christ, they'll be revealed one day. They'll be honored. You'll be rewarded. So as we wind down on Solomon, be encouraged. Remember, starting well is good. Finishing well is even better. How do you finish well? Just obey. Just obey. When you blow it, we talked about last week, keep short accounts, confess your sin to God, and be restored to his fellowship. Make that your pattern. And live in God's word. When you're confronted with the truth of the scripture day after day, it is a great reminder to keep you going in the right direction. To keep you going in the right direction. Let Solomon's life, both the upside and the downside, be a reminder to you and to I and to me that we're going to give account one day and let it be an account that we have no regrets about as far as is in our command, as far as under our disposal, our actions, our choices, our behavior. Choose life. Choose Christ. Choose faithfulness. Choose obedience. And when that judgment comes, we'll stand before Christ and he'll say, well done. Good job. Enter into my joy. Let's pray. Lord, I do think of the words of Psalm 16 that in your presence there is fullness of joy. There are pleasures forevermore. Father, I'm reminded that the things you tell us not to do or command us to do are in the end always for our benefit as well as to your honor and your glory. That, Father, your commands are commands to life. Lord, help us in our youth to remember you and to let your words be goads that keep us going in the right direction. When we think of Solomon and the end of his life, Lord, help us to remember that we don't have to go that same direction, that we can obey, that your spirit within us is sufficient, that our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is enough to say no to our sinful desires, that, Lord, in the end it will be worth it all when we see you face to face. Lord, may you be able, may you be pleased to say, at the end of each one of our lives, well done, enter into my joy.
Thanks, Lord, for all of your good promises for us. In Jesus' name, amen.